Well, this morning we are going to talk about the second commandment. Uh, I actually get the second commandment, the positive, and I'm going to do it next week. I'm going to do the negative, which I like because it means that I can sort of I can separate the two, the two sides and really keep them separate and not kind of overlap or anything like that. It would be too tempting to talk about the negatives today, so I'm just going to stick with the positive side of the second commandment. The second commandment is from Exodus chapter 20. It's actually three verses. It's one of the longer commandments. This is what uh, it says in Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So it's a little lengthier as far as the commandments go. Uh, If you want a a commandment that has caused a tremendous amount of strife, consternation, infighting, uh, and struggle in church history, this would probably be the one. Uh, You know, today, I think a lot of folks, if if you know people who go to other churches, one thing you find is that the fourth commandment is not altogether popular, the idea of the Lord's Day. Um, the idea of church attendance on Sundays is popular, but the Lord's Day itself is sort of not necessarily popular with folks. But if you actually want to see a commandment that has caused literal fighting in the history of the church, this is that commandment, the second commandment. Um, and we talked about this when we went through our discussion of church history. We talked about iconoclasm, about how people would tear down idols, tear down pictures of, of Christ, tear down pictures of, of God. Uh, and so this is you know very central to a lot of those debates that were happening in the 900s and in the 1000s. And there are even some today uh, in the Reformed camp who sort of disagree about the commandment, how to apply it, Uh, And we're going to talk about that next week. So I'm pushing that side of it, the controversial side, to next week. Um, But I expect that my lesson this week, which is going to focus on what is God calling us to here, will be a little less controversial. So if if you're looking for a little spice in your life, a little excitement in your Sunday school, make sure you make it next Sunday. Um, So when we read the commandment, when we read the commandment about not making images... Um, let's try not to get hung up on the negative. Um, you know, we think about don't make a carved image. Uh, what is a carved image? What can we make an image of? Um, can we make it but not bow down to it? Can we make it but not use it for worship? And we sort of run those, through the series of questions that sort of goes through our minds when we hear that command. But we should walk before we run. You know, we should, we should actually ask ourselves, we know what we're forbidden to do, I think, basically, um, but we should know how to do what we're commanded to do. And so that's what God is calling us to in the second commandment. This morning, I want to ask the question, what is God actually calling us to? What is he telling us that we should do with this commandment? Well, the first commandment, we know what that was. Which I want to have a volunteer. What was the first commandment? Have no other gods, right? And that one said that God should... We should have God as our God, and we shouldn't have anyone or anything else as our God. And this commandment tells us more about having God as our God. Um, and so what it's saying is we should worship him. We should bow down to him. 
Uh, we should love him. We should keep his commandments. These are all things that are sort of God's telling us. How do we have God as our God? Well, keep reading, in a sense. And so we should worship God, and we should worship him. This commandment is telling us in the ways that he says we should worship him. So, I'm just going to shorten it up. Um, so, our larger catechism gives a little bit of a thorough answer, and then I'm going to sort of bounce off of it a little bit. As you know, these larger catechism questions are too full for us to just spend the whole time exegeting. And that's not actually what I want us to do here on Sunday mornings. I don't want us to just open the larger catechism, go line by line through the whole thing, but, but rather just get a basic overview and then sort of go back and ask some questions afterwards. So Grant has graciously agreed to read larger catechism question 108, which relates specifically to this commandment. Would you go ahead and read that? What are the duties required in the second commandment? The duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath instituted in his word, particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ, the reading, preaching, and hearing of the word, the administration and receiving of the sacraments, church government and discipline, the ministry and maintenance thereof, religious fasting, swearing by the name of God, and vowing unto him, as also the disproving, detesting, opposing all false worship, and according to each one's place and calling, removing it, and all monuments of idolatry. So this, this, command, this uh, larger catechism is endorsing what we would call iconoclasm, endorsing the idea of removing uh, according to your place and calling, uh, idolatry, which means that if your neighbor has an idol set up it's, and it's not your right to that property, you can't go tear it down. It has to be your, your, something under your control. There are two approaches to, to worship in the history of the church and especially sort of in Protestantism. One is called the normative principle. And the other one is called the, does anyone know what it's called? Regulative principle, all right. Uh, can anyone spell out for us what the normative principle is, or anybody want to take a shot at it? Anything that God has not directly forbidden is permissible yeah. when it comes to the worship of God. So if God has not said in his Bible, you may not set up a basketball court in the worship service, then you can. <laughs> Uh, not to get, I mean, just it's exaggerating a little bit, but I, you'll find out later it's not exactly exaggerating. Um, you know, where do we see the normative principle at play in a way that Reformed folks probably wouldn't practice it? Can anyone think of anything? A band for music during worship. What's that? A band? Well, we'll actually break that down a little bit, but I kind of think, I, I'm of the opinion that a band wouldn't be the normative principle necessarily. Um, I think that you could have a band and you could still have the regulative principle. We just don't have a band. <laughs> but an example of that might be something like if you go to um, a, a Roman Catholic church, for example, what will they do after they, they pray and have the Mass? They'll actually take the, the host, and what will they do with it? Does anyone, have you been to Roman Catholic Church? 
They will actually raise the, the, the priest will actually take it and hold it up. Like they'll elevate the host and sort of do this. I'm just going to call it idolatry. I'll just do something negative here. It's just, they, they do this idolatry with the host where they'll hold it way up and people will bow down. Um, because this is Jesus' body. Um, and they would say, well, look, elevating the host, maybe it's not practiced or told to do it in Scripture, but show me a verse that tells us not to do it. And that's sort of the, sort of the approach. And, and I could be mistaken about Lutheranism, uh, but I think that in Lutheranism they do the same because they also have this very elevated view of what is present in, with, above, and below the supper. So they'll do something similar to that too. But they would say, look, if, it's not to- if we're not told that we can't do it, then it's allowed. Um, one of the examples that I, I sort of do point to, and I just mentioned it actually, is um, there are, is a church, and I'm forgetting the name of the pastor, which is fine. Um, and they had, uh, about six months ago, they had a sermon series on wrestling. And I think oh, they were what? using it as a thing. What's that? A what? Wrestling. <laughs> like... Like sweaty guys yeah. tackling each other and punching each other, we call and wrestling. Yes, <laughs> my mistake. Yeah, uh, and they had famous wrestlers come to the church and speak, and uh, I, I don't even want to go into that. But they set up a wrestling ring in the middle of the church, and so instead of having like a pulpit, you know, then he just kind of walked around and talked in the in the wrestling ring. And they put on wrestling matches in the middle of the church service. They would point to, if they were going to be very self-conscious about their worship, which I don't think they're that self-conscious about what they're doing, they would be able maybe to point to the normative principle and say, look, the Bible doesn't say you can't set up a wrestling ring in the middle of the church. So how are you going to stop me? What about churches that have like ballet and interpretive dance? I would say that that would be another area where you would have the the normative principle because you don't see dance being part of the public worship of God, certainly not in the New Testament era. Um, And so I think that would be another example of that kind of thing. Now there are, there there is a, man, never mind. I was going to throw Presbyterian Church under the bus, but I just remembered they did have a ballet dance thing, but it wasn't on a Sunday morning, so I'm not going to pick on them. Um, (laughs) But that's the way these things can sort of shake out. What's being taught in the second commandment, though, is what we call the regulative principle. And uh, do we have an articulate defender of the regulative principle who's able to sort of tell us what it means? Or, as I said before, just give it a shot. Can the same person answer for the regulative that answer for the normative? Go for it, Grant. We're only permitted to worship God in ways he's expressly commanded us. And specifically in corporate worship is what we're thinking of, right? Um, Maybe at home you could do other things that are creative and, you know, it wouldn't be the same thing as corporate worship. But what we're thinking of is what are we as a church, when we corporately get together and worship God, what are we supposed to be doing? And so the regulative principle says, no, 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 don't wait for God to say no to something before you don't include it. Instead, only include the elements of worship that the scriptures say that you should. And so the idea here is God not only forbids us from worshiping other gods, but he forbids us of inventing our own ways to worship him. Um, And this is, 
some piece to this that really hones in on New Testament, right? So you couldn't necessarily go to the Old Testament and say, see, they, they sacrificed animals, so we can still sacrifice animals in our worship services. Sure. Uh, there's, some, there's some piece of it that's, mm-hmm. I guess, qualifies it with New Testament. Yeah. And I'll have to admit, I'm going to, I'm going to approach this from the perspective of the New Testament. So I'm going to look at what's the New Testament say that we ought to be including in our worship. Now, there's stuff that you see in the Old Testament that sort of sets the, the bar, lets you know what pleases God. Uh, but, you know, just because you see God pleased with something in the Old Testament doesn't necessarily mean it carries over. So we have to be really self-conscious about that. Um, oh, yeah. Ed Young, not only did he build a wrestling ring in his church, but he also did a sermon series on humility. And at the end of the sermon on humility, he got onto his own private roller coaster and rode it around the sanctuary. Um, No joke. That really happened. So, (laughs) Um, yeah, I had written a few things in here, just examples of, of, of that. Also, if you go to a Catholic church, so have any of you been to a service in a Catholic church before? You're not in trouble if you did. <laughs> I have, but I didn't pay attention. Good for you. Yeah. When I when I went, the, some stuff that I noticed was the the pastor no, the pastor the priest runs around the church, and he has a little basin of water, holy water, and he runs around and he sprinkles it on everybody in in the in the congregation. They also have a censer full of smoke. They'll take and they'll they'll walk through the the room with that. They uh, oftentimes will have a parade. They'll parade a large cross through the room. Uh, they will do some things that we would never even imagine doing in our own churches. So um, Catholic churches, do you know how many sacraments the Catholic church has? Seven. They have seven. Don't ask me to tell you all of them. I don't remember them all. One of them is marriage that we don't have is marriage. We don't believe that's a sacrament. They have um, holy orders which would be another one. Uh, And all the other ones have skipped my mind. I can't remember any of the other ones, but that's all right. Um, But at least they get two right. You know, they have the Lord's Supper in one form at least, and then they have baptism. Uh, You may notice there are some churches where folks go on Wednesdays and they come back and they've got ash on their foreheads the rest of the day. Even Protestant churches do this. Um, one thing you see is that there are a lot of churches, even in the Protestant tradition, that are willing to practice things that aren't taught in the Bible, but they're traditions that have been around the church for a long time. Um, so a lot of these things that we don't, aren't doing, it's not because we couldn't do it. I mean, I'm perfectly capable of generating some ashes and wiping them on people's foreheads. Um, it is not a matter of us not being able to do it. The question is, has God commanded us to do these things? Has he commanded us to worship him in these ways? Uh, might it be that we have these extra holidays that they just don't have any basis in Scripture? Um, and so, yeah, we sort of restrain ourselves in a lot of ways. Uh, and, the, and, and, you know, uh, you know, if we asked Robert Hayes, he would probably be willing to ride his Harley Davidson through the church if that would just draw crowds of people in, you know, and I'm sure everyone would love it, especially the guy that cleans the carpet afterwards, you know. Um, but the reason we don't do these things is not because we're not capable of doing them. It's because we're constrained by Scripture. So our church's confession says this. It says, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed 
in the Holy Scripture. Notice he uses the word prescri- or the confession uses the word prescribed. Um, so reformed worship that is guided by the regulative principle is is meant to be simple. So when we talk about worship, there are, are two distinctions we make. We make a distinction between elements. Does anyone know what the other thing is? People, I guess. Well, it'd be forms. Elements, forms, circumstances. Sorry, I tried to lead, and I didn't lead well, well on that. <laughs> well, the um, way that it was stated, you shall not create any image of any likeness of anything that's in the heaven above the earth or whatever, nor shall it serve them. Yep. Let not say you can't have pictures of anybody, though. Yeah. Well, we are Why going. Why you not worship in the picture? We're going to uh, get into that next week. I'm going to make my case for more of a strict view on that. So, yeah, get excited about that. Get, get ready for that. But um, an, an element of worship. Can anyone tell me what an element is? It's something that's commanded to be part of worship. So it's a thing that's commanded to be part of worship. And we're about to talk a lot about elements. Um, what would a form be? A form would, or, or maybe we could think of it as a way of doing the, the element, right? Like a form or circumstance, I'm using those words interchangeably, um, would be sort of like, how do we take the elements and actually do it? So like, for example, um, the Bible tells us to read scripture. One of the elements of, of, of worship that we're told in scripture is reading the Bible. Um, but, the, but, the, but the Bible doesn't tell us how loudly we should read it. Um, does it tell us how long of a Bible reading we should have? Um, does it tell us um, the timber of our voice or whether we should give inflection or, or something like that? It does not. Uh, you know, the Bible is just, it tells us to read the scripture publicly. It doesn't tell us necessarily how, the specifics. It doesn't tell us whether we should or should not use amplification. And so what we don't want to do is go, well, the Bible doesn't say our church should have air conditioning, so we won't have air conditioning. And the Bible doesn't say that we shouldn't have amplification, so we won't have amplification. Um, Instead, we're not talking about elements there. We're talking about forms and circumstances. We're talking about the way we pull this stuff off. Um, The Bible tells us to sing. It tells us that we should sing scripture. uh, But does it tell us the tune we should use? Um, There's no written music in the Bible. It doesn't give us any tunes in the Bible. Uh, Does it tell us if it should be upbeat or if it should be somber? Um, does it tell us whether we should, as I mentioned, use amplification when we have music or singing? No, it doesn't. And you could go down the list of uh, the circumstances, the things that, that, that we do in worship that they're not specifically commanded, but it really is a matter of wisdom. It's an, a matter of how do we actually do the things God told us to do. Um, so Reformed churches will differ on the how of worship, but what we don't differ on is the what of worship. What should actually be part of the worship in our church? And so I want to mention five things that are elements of worship that every church should have because God commands it in the scripture. And I'm going to use a lot of Bible. So if you've got your Bible, sort of get perched and ready because I'm going to have a lot of you just kind of reading different verses for us. Would somebody open to 1 Timothy 4.13? And then would somebody else open to Acts 13.14? I see Willie Ray going for it. I'm going to let him do the Acts one. 
So the first thing that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, gonna to talk about is, I'm going to erase the elements and forms because it's taking up room here. Actually, I'll erase both of these. So the first element of worship that we have that's commanded in Scripture that we should still be doing is is the reading of Scripture. The reading of Scripture. Um, can I get somebody to read 1 Timothy 4.13? Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to, exhor- to exhortation, to teaching. All right. So there, it, it's a direct command from Paul to Timothy, and Timothy's an elder in the church, and he's saying, make sure that you devote yourself not just to reading Scripture. He doesn't say, Timothy, make sure you're reading the Bible. But what kind of reading does he say? Public. Public reading. Public reading of Scripture. And so we have this very direct command in the scripture that public worship ought to include uh, the reading of the Bible. Again, there's elements of that that are, you know, forms and circumstances there that we have to figure out as a church. Is a preacher going to read for 30 minutes? <laughs> Is he going to read for two minutes? Uh, that's stuff that we have to work out. But one thing we is not optional is public reading of scripture. Um, Willie Ray, did you get Acts 13, 14? And then would you also read 15? So the two verses. 14 and 15. This will be the old old, uh, King James. All right. Now when Paul and his company moved from Apples, they came to Perga and Pamphylia. John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Presidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue said unto them, saying, Amen, and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. All right. Notice the example of what's happening there. This is a worship service that the apostles are participating in. And one of the things that is an an element of that worship is the reading of the law and the prophets. In other words, your your Old Testament equivalent and your New Testament practice as well is to read Scripture in public. Read the Bible as part of the service. And then there's also a a passage in Acts 15.21. It just says, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. He is read every Sabbath. In other words, they read public scripture in the synagogues whenever the Lord's people meet. So the pattern of scripture, I think, is very clear. We should be meeting weekly. We should be meeting on the Lord's Day. We should be in, you know, look at the fourth commandment lesson if you want to know why we're not doing that on Saturdays anymore. Um, But we should be meeting on the Lord's Day, um, and there should be public reading of Scripture. That's what the New Testament practice and pattern was. That's what is commanded to the New Testament elders through the apostles. And so that's why we have the public reading of Scripture here at Pearl PCA. We have a reading in the morning with the sermon, but we also have a pretty extended reading, usually a chapter in the evening as well. Um, and by the way, don't take that for granted. I know that um, if, you know, if you've never been in a Roman Catholic church, maybe you've never gone to a church where they don't do much Bible reading. But um, 
my friend Brett from Kansas was visiting this last week, and he was joking with me how he goes and plays the organ for the Lutheran Church uh, in their in their town once a uh, once a month. And the joke that he just that he made was, "Wow, in this morning service, we read more Bible than we read in my other church all month long." So there are just churches where they get a verse read, and that's it. I mean, there's very little Bible reading done in public. So, so just know that there are a lot of churches where they don't do much of that. Uh, would somebody look up Second Timothy three sixteen? And then read from verse 16 to chapter 4, verse 2. It's like four or five verses. All scripture is breathed out by God for pro- and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. I charge him in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. All right. If we were going to write, if the first, com- uh, the first element of worship is the reading of Scripture, what is Paul saying should be the second element of worship this morning in that passage preach so preaching of scripture yeah the preaching of scripture Uh, again this is commanded in the new testament it's commanded in the bible um and notice for Paul here, the idea is not, you know, it would be a good idea if you, if you got up and, and preached the word. Uh, maybe, maybe you could think of something that would help people. Um, you know, maybe he, he doesn't say, like, you know, you should preach the word occasionally, whenever it's needed, whenever people really ask you to, Timothy. Um, no, he's very insistent on how frequently he should be doing it and how fervently he should be doing it, how eagerly he should be doing it. Um, he preaches the word as often as he can whenever he's called upon. He says, be ready in season and out of season. So in other words, preaching should be something that is a frequent presence in church. And, and I would say just as this letter from Paul to Timothy is supposed to be read in public, the preaching of Timothy should be done in public as frequently as possible whenever they meet. And again, if you go to our fourth commandment lesson, we're going to talk about this. The New Testament practice is to preach and teach and worship every single Sunday morning. And so, again, remember, an element is something that's fixed. It's something that's unchanging. It's something that's permanent. So even if you go from one church to another to another, these five things we're going to talk about should all be there. They should all be there. Any questions about this one? I know very few people who think preaching should not be an element of worship, so I don't, it's not, not very controversial. Um, the, thir- the third thing, though, is we need to read from 1 Timothy chapter 2. And while you're looking that up, I'm going to read a passage from Colossians. Uh, Colossians 1.9 says, 
And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who, was, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The very first verse gives us a key to what we're looking at here. He says, so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now that I've given you that hint, who's got First Timothy chapter 2? We need to read verses 1 and 2. Okay, what might the third thing that needs to be an element of worship be, considering both of those verses? Prayer. Prayer. All right. Praying. Starting to see a pattern here. The reading of Scripture, the preaching of Scripture, the praying of Scripture. This is what the New Testament church does. What is what is Paul say? He says, we have not ceased to pray for you. This is a, him saying that we as a church corporately, we get together and one of the things we pray for is that you guys will be strengthened. The New Testament is just saturated with public prayers all over the place. The book of Acts just records prayers and prayers. Um, Paul expects elders in the church to lead people and pray for the people specifically praying the content of Scripture. Um, the content of scripture. Um, sometimes we'll actually use scriptural phrases. I try to really intentionally do that when I do the pastoral prayers on Sunday morning. I don't know when I'm doing the pastoral prayer if you notice, but I do my very best to weave actual scriptural text into the prayer, um, partly because it's biblical to pray God's word back to him. Um, but it's Oftentimes, it's simply the content of Scripture that we pray. So we don't always pray word after word after word what the Bible says, but instead we pray the content of Scripture. We pray the content of Scripture. Um, any questions about praying as an element of worship? Actually, I don't think any of these elements are going to be controversial, but it's important that we, that we know why we're doing it. Um, fourth one is the singing of Scripture. funny four make it the real four um we're commanded in the bible to sing scripture uh, one of the scripture texts i could go to for this is psalm 150 right or so, the 150 psalms all of them because the whole psalm book is like sing 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 just constant commands to sing and worship god together um, the psalms are just incredibly rich in their insistence that we should not only praise god with our words um, but also with songs the Psalms, the way that they functioned in Israel was they functioned as the songbook of Israel. So after David has composed these songs, a lot of the songs are written by the sons of Korah. You have all of these people who have written the Psalms, and they are inspired songs to worship God with. Um, and they were just, they're just begging to be used. And in all honesty, it's, it's kind of sad that, that a lot of churches do not sing Psalms. They just don't sing them at all. 
um, very, very often, I think most cases, if you go to any church in America on a Sunday morning, you will not hear the psalm sung. Not in any, any form. Now, you might hear an Isaac Watts paraphrase of the psalms, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, but very often you won't, unless it's maybe the Psalm 23 or something, you know. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. Um, there are a few that have really kind of made it to the hit list, you know, the, the greatest hits in our, in our hymnals, but a lot of them haven't. So I, I think it is, it's sad that the Psalms have kind of fallen on hard times. Um, but I'm, I'm persuaded that, that we ought to be singing the Psalms. Um, if for no other reason, it's countercultural. You know, it pushes back against the day that we live in. But I also think that you see public singing of psalms happen, actually, in the, in the Bible. In Acts chapter 4, verse 24, there's this passage. I'm going to read it out loud to you. Uh, it says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of, your, of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. I I actually don't think this is just a public recitation of of the psalm, Psalm 2. I don't think they all just collectively said the words of Psalm 2 out loud. In order to do this kind of public recitation of scripture, it actually makes much more sense for the people to have taken the worship that they've already been doing in the temple and bring it out into public. And so it's just like in the, in, you know, we went to the ball game, uh, the Braves game on Thursday night, and everybody got up and everybody just spontaneously knew, take me out to the ball game. Everybody except me. Uh, everybody just knew how to sing, take me out to the ball game. Now imagine if they had gotten up and said, hey, let's all say the words to take me out to the ball game. Can you imagine how that would have gone over? Uh, it just doesn't work. Doing public recitation of lines that you know doesn't work, but singing it does. And so, so I think that what's happening there in Psalm 2 is actually the public singing of Psalm chapter 2. And they, th- they say this is an appropriate moment for us in public to be singing Psalm chapter 2. Um, maybe you disagree with me. Maybe you think they all just got up and everybody just said Psalm 2 out loud, but I, I don't think that's what happened there. There's also a command in the book of Ephesians that we should be singing psalms together. Ephesians 5.19 says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And there's also a verse in Colossians 3.16 that uses almost the same phrase. And, and what that means is psalms should be included in worship. They should be a part of how we worship. They should be one of the things that we sing. However, I want to also make very clear, I'm what you would call an inclusive psalmist. In other words, we should include psalms. We should be singing psalms. But I am not an exclusive psalmist. Uh, I remember very, very early on, I was sitting in the office, and I, I frequently asked Robert for advice. And I said, you know, I'd really like us to start singing some psalms, maybe in the evening, we could bring it in. Uh, what do you think of that? And uh, you guys know Robert. He, he, like, he kind of got fired up and started telling me, this is going to be the worst mistake you ever made. This is going to be the, wor- the worst idea that's ever been had. And I kind of thought, well, what's going on here? He's, he's really laying into me. Hopefully he won't mind me saying this. And then, uh, and then after, by the end, I, I, I got to clarify to him, I'm not saying that we don't sing hymns. I'm just saying including a psalm. And he said, oh, 
Okay, well, never mind all that then. <laughs> uh, he, he thought I was saying, let's throw out the hymnal and, and only sing psalms now. And uh, that was not at all what I was saying. I thought, well, I need to make sure I explained that I'm not saying that we shouldn't sing hymns, but uh, it's a good idea to include this other thing. But that was a, that was a great moment for Robert and I. We're, we're best friends now after that. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that Paul in this, in, this, in this passage in Ephesians, he's saying we should sing. We should address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So let me tell you why I'm not an exclusive psalmist. After all, we've got this inspired hymn book from God. You open your Bible to the middle of your Bible, uh, the middle, and it just has all these verses right here that, that can be sung. So why do we need other songs? Why would we be able to sing anything else other than hymns? Well, part of the reason is I don't think that when Paul says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, he's just saying three breeds of the same dog here. I don't think he's just saying the same thing three different ways. Um, I, I think he's talking about three different qualifications, three different types of songs. So uh, let me give you a few reasons why we should be singing things other than psalms. I want to make sure we say we should be singing psalms, but why should we sing other things too? One of the reasons is Christ has come. Christ has come. So in, in Matthew twenty-eight seventeen, it tells us that the disciples worshipped Jesus directly intentionally and specifically they fixed their gaze on jesus and the passage says they worshiped him and then you'd see the same thing in luke 24 52 and so i think one of the legitimate inferences from their worship of jesus is that if we only sing psalms we don't get to praise jesus except through inference because when you read the psalms you're reading a book about jesus but you don't get to sing about him not specifically, not directly, not intentionally. You don't get to raise his name up. Uh, you worship him through symbolism, through inference, and you worship him through types and shadows. Um, now, there are some people, they actually make this argument. They say, but in the Old Testament, the name salvation means Jesus. Because Yeshua, Jesus, means salvation. So they say, well, every time you read the Old Testament and you sing the word salvation... You're singing the name of Jesus. And I would just say, every time you say the word man, are you saying my name? No. Because the name Adam means man. But every time you say man, you're not saying my name. And just because we say the word salvation in the Old Testament does not mean we're praising Jesus' name or it doesn't mean that we're saying his name. Um, the second reason I think that, so, so in other words, we should be writing new songs because we need to sing Jesus' name when we worship. We need to sing his name. Um, the second reason I think the Bible commands psalms but doesn't restrict us to only psalms is because we preach and pray the psalm, the, the scripture, and when we do that, we're sort of freely saying aloud what the content of scripture is, right? When I preach, I'm opening up the scripture and explaining what it means. So in other words, a sermon that's biblical contains the content of scripture, um, the, pr the prayers, if they're biblical, are going to contain the content of Scripture. And I would say that when we sing hymns, we're also singing the content of Scripture. And the session of the church and the elders of the church have to make sure that the songs that we sing actually are biblical in their content. Just like our prayers need to be biblical, just like our preaching needs to be biblical in its content. And so we're free to, to worship God with biblical content. Even if every single word that we sing isn't always from Scripture. 
And we sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We're singing from Isaiah. But then we sing, blessed Trinity. Is that from scripture? The Bible doesn't use the word Trinity. So we're taking these extra biblical words, we're bringing them in, and we're making the Bible much richer. What's that? But you have the three. Yeah, you have the content of the Trinity in the Bible. Yeah. So it's, it's, not a, it's not a biblical term, but it's a biblical idea, and it's a biblical concept. Um. So it's biblical to sing. You know, I think it's biblical to sing the word Trinity in worship, even if it's not in the Bible. Um, so, um, third reason. Uh, the worship the book of Revelation shows us is worship that is not the singing of psalms. So if you go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, Revelation 14, 2, or Revelation 15, 2, you see these three examples of God's people and they're singing and they're accompanied by instruments and they're not singing psalms and they're not in the temple and they're not in heaven yet. At least two of those examples, people on earth are suffering, they're experiencing uh, persecution and they're singing to God and the songs they're singing are new songs. And in one place it actually says, and they sang a new song. And if you try to go to the psalms and find it, you won't find it there. So corporately speaking, you have the worship modeled for us in the New Testament that happens in Revelation is not psalm singing. So I think, I think biblically speaking, what you see modeled for God's people is we sing the psalms, but we don't only sing the psalms. Um, <clears throat> I have other reasons too, but I don't want to keep going there. Um, if you have questions about psalm singing, please talk to me and, and ask me. I'm happy to talk about it. Oh, I've got to move. What's that? We need one more. We need number five. What would number five be? Well, close, but not. Not good? You know what? I didn't put bringing of offerings because Reformed folks differ over whether it's an element of worship or not. There are, in, in Presbyterianism, I think it's only in the last hundred years that we actually decided to make it in our book of church order an element of worship. But it hasn't always, that's not a, a uni, hasn't been universally agreed on. But we say we agree the standard of that church. Yes. And, uh, and I could put that as a number six, but then it wouldn't match my of scripture. I don't know how to. <laughs> uh, but the last one here is seeing, is seeing of scripture. And, and that's an important element of public worship because... Um, I'm not going to read the words of institution, especially since we're really out of time. I should be quitting, quitting now, right now. But in Matthew 26, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, and he tells us that we should do it. And, 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 P, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that, that we should treat the words of institution as authoritative and that we should be observing the Lord's Supper because of that. And so the claim that we should have the Lord's Supper as an element of worship, I don't think is controversial. There are very few churches that say the Lord's Supper and baptism should not be part of the worship of the church. Um, So I'm only talking about two sacraments. There are only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, The word sacrament means a sign of a holy thing. So a sign is something that you can see, or actually a a word can be a sign too. A sign is anything that points to something other than itself. So, so, but when we baptize somebody, what are we seeing? What we're seeing is the washing of the word of God. We're actually seeing in a visible way 
this thing that is normally invisible. Um, When we baptize a child, what are we seeing? We're seeing symbolized the covenant of God, which you have to admit is not a visible thing. You can't see it. But we're also seeing symbolized washing. We're seeing symbolized uh, cleansing that comes from God. And so there's something very special about baptism because we're seeing a thing that normally we can't see with our eyes. And, uh, and it only points to the thing. I mean, when you, when you baptize a child, their sin isn't washed away. But what is it a sign of? It's a sign that if they trust in Jesus, that sin will be washed away. It's a sign of the covenant that they are part of. And so it's a, a spiritual truth that's not normally visible. When we take the Lord's Supper and we take the bread and we eat it, what are we, what is, what's being symbolized? Jesus' body. body broken for us. And when we drink the wine, what are we, what are we drinking? Blood. We're drinking his blood. We're drinking a symbol of his blood. But Jesus doesn't say symbol. He just says, this is my blood. Because he knows. He knows you're going to see it as a sign already when he says it that way. And so when we, uh, when we practice the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, we're seeing the promises of God in a visible form. And so, um, sorry, I had to sprint here at the end. I had to just move really fast and not talk very much and not ask a lot of questions. But I will ask this at at this point. Are there any questions that you might have that you think other people are wondering the same thing? Yes. Um, Maybe not a question, but it's interesting, number five, with regards to the second commandment dealing with images. And our temptation is to worship through images. Uh, But we can kind of breathe in that. What images are permissible for mm-hmm. worship? And number five hits the nail on the head. Yeah. Those images are the water used in baptism. So if we need an image for Jesus, we can look to baptism. And if we need an image for, for Jesus or for worship, we can look to bread and we can look to wine. Because at least with those, we do have pretty clear New Testament warning to, to use those images or those symbols in yeah. worship. And, and that's I guess a, a sigh of relief because when you read the Second Commandment, it's like, man, well, what what can we use or, or any any image? Mm-hmm. And actually, he has ordained some images for us. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Another thing about these about baptism and the Lord's Supper is they don't stick around afterwards. Like yeah. um, after you pour the water, the water's gone. Uh, once you have eaten the bread and drank the wine, it's gone. So you, there's no temptation to sort of revere this thing or sort of fixate on it because it goes away. And then the next time that the, the, the word of God gets preached, what, do we, what happens? We get to see it again. We get to see the thing that God intends for us to see and not anything else, not anything extra. Um, if there's any other questions, we can talk afterwards. I'm happy to talk about this. Um, but I have to wrap up because I've gone too long. So let me pray for us, and then next week, come back, and we'll talk about, uh, you, know, you know, bring your boxing gloves. and <laughs> Just don't hurt me, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for telling us what pleases you. We thank you for telling us what it is in Scripture that you want to be honored by and worshipped by. You've given us very specific means for how we should worship you. And so, God, would you, would you help us to be people who really delight to worship you, God, but at the same time help us to remember this isn't here for us. Uh, your worship is not here to entertain us, Lord. Um, your worship isn't here to, to please us, for us to, quote-unquote, get something out of it. But rather, God, you've given us the worship that you've instituted in your word specifically because it's what pleases you. 
And you've also told us, God, as a happy side effect of worship, Lord, that you intend to lift our hearts up and bring joy to us as well. So I ask that you would use the ministry of your word today, the singing of your word, the praying of your word, Lord. Would you use these elements of worship that you've commanded to bring glory to your own name? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Yeah, I just fell again.